2: Governor Kemp takes the stand. Sort of. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on the ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Patricia Murphy, one of the two political insiders here at the AJC on the Politically Georgia podcast. Greg Bluestein is off today. So, Mark Nisi, our Georgia government reporter for the AJC, joins me today as a new co host, a new and temporary co host for Politically Georgia. A reminder if you are just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll never miss an episode coming up later, why a federal judge denied Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's request to block a challenge to her eligibility to run for a second term. But first, Mark, you have been inside the courtroom following a federal trial that is a look at the 2018 campaign related to Stacey Abrams and Governor Brian Kemp. There has been a court challenge really in the works for years, Take us inside the courtroom and bring our readers up to speed on this rather complicated but super important situation.
1: Sure. So this is the Fair Fight voting rights trial that was filed after Stacey Abrams lost to Brian Kemp in 2018. And now it's in court, finally, as they're running against each other again. And Fair Fight, along with several other churches and organizations, are challenging Georgia's voter registration policies, such as exact match, where voters need to be matched up to their names need to exactly match or else they have to take further steps to prove their identity, citizenship and absentee ballot cancellations and erroneous voter registration records. All that's in place. So part of this, we knew in back in December 2019 or so that Governor Kemp would be testifying via deposition. That deposition happened in January 2020 and finally what was made public on Friday in this trial. And the plaintiffs, Fair Fight and their allies, they wanted to ask Kemp about his prior comments that seemed to throw a little bit of shade on minority voter registration efforts when he was speaking to Republican audiences. These recordings were were leaked before. They did come out, um, especially in the 2018 campaign for governor. But now we finally have Kemp's words under oath about what he meant when he said that he was worried about Democrats' voter registration efforts.
2: Okay. And so how did he explain himself when, when that taped deposition was shown in court on Friday?
1: He said it was about politics. He said it was about not telling the Democrats that they can't register voters or that minority voters shouldn't register, but the governor said that he wanted Republicans to do the same thing. He was trying to fire up Republicans to also mobilize voters just like Democrats. He was painting a dire picture, he said, of how Democrats are beating Republicans in voter registration and registering many minority voters. And he was issuing a warning saying Republicans need to step up. His direct quote from a political perspective I was concerned about the work that the other side was doing to turn their voters out. And I was making that point to urge our folks to do exactly the same.
2: Okay, but he said that he was not connecting his policies as Secretary of State to the people turning out. Did he talk about that at all or address that in his deposition?
1: No, not at least, not in the part that was played in court. Uh, it was all about these speeches that he gave both during the 2014 and 2018 campaigns and not actually about the work that he did as Secretary of State.
2: Okay. I think it's so amazing that this is really a kind of a sealed courtroom and that there are no cameras, there are no um, audio recordings coming out. And to know what's happening in that courtroom, you really actually have to go into courtroom. So what is it like? um, Who else is in the courtroom? What is the feeling inside that trial now that it's getting off the ground? And, And it's crazy to me that this is happening really during the 2022 campaign.
1: Right. Well, it's going to be a long trial and there are going to be so many witnesses called by the plaintiffs. It could take three weeks or maybe even more for them to present all their witnesses, voters and Um, As we said, Governor Kemp already presented his testimony. Uh, Senator Raphael Warnock uh, gave a videotaped deposition just like Kemp, and that mostly dealt with his role as pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church and whether they had to dedicate resources to fight against voting laws that they feel disenfranchise or make it more difficult for voters to participate. So inside the courtroom, you know, it's a trial. There are witnesses on the stand and they're questioned first by the plaintiffs because the plaintiffs call them and then by the defense, which are attorneys representing Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and the state election board. And it is somewhat slow going because you a lot of it is re- laying the groundwork to show that the georgia's voting practices do create efforts and do cost money for organizations that could otherwise be trying to mobilize voters in other ways and now the state they push back and say that's the whole point of groups like fair fight fair fight your whole purpose is to mobilize and engage voters so how is that a diversion of your resources how is georgia's voting laws and practices changing? Anything you do from what you already do. And Fairfight says, well, we wouldn't be wasting time on exact match. We'd be spending time on other issues. So that's where the debate is now. What I'm really looking forward to is when more voters take the stand. I want to hear the stories of voters who say they had hardships, especially in 2018 and 2020, in trying to get their votes counted. I think we've heard anecdotal stories over the years, but I want to hear what voters say when they're under oath and when they're questioned by lawyers on both sides.
2: That will be so fascinating because I covered that 2018 race when. I was working for the Daily Beast and tried to look into and find specific voters who had had a hard time with exact match. And many of the people I talked to ended up having their problems resolved before the before election day. And so, to be able to talk to specific voters who knew that they had a problem and that problem was unresolved, I think will really add a lot to the public understanding of how that might have affected that um, that election. So. To me, again, it's just crazy this is happening during the 2022 campaign. Will this have any effect on how Georgians vote in the primary or the general? Is it too soon to know that yet?
1: U.S. District Judge Steve Jones, he's going to decide this case once all the evidence has presented. In the past, he has said that he doesn't intend to rule before the May 24th primary. He hasn't said that recently that I have heard, but he has said that during pretrial hearings. And I think that's probably the case. Any ruling so close to the primary would be highly politicized and likely overturned on appeal so it makes sense that we could see a ruling after the primary date and it could potentially affect the general election. You know, it, it's within a judge's power if he finds that the facts and the law support it. He could order changes in exact match registration policies. He could order changes in how absentee ballots are canceled or how the Secretary of State's office trains workers to interact with voters and make sure they have a experience that guarantees that their vote will be counted. So there are things you could do. And, you know, judges do have a lot of authority, but judges are also very mindful of the appellate courts and following the law because they know if they don't have a very sound reasoning, they could well be overturned.
2: Okay, that's so fascinating. Well, so Georgia is a hot topic in federal court these days, not just in the uh, Fair Fight case. There is also a federal case in sorry, there's also a case in federal court here in Atlanta dealing with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's been a challenge to Representative Greene from a Northwest Georgia voter challenging Green's eligibility to run for re-election based on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And that voter has said that there is a constitutional prohibition on anybody who has participated in an insurrection. Did I get that generally right, Mark? Does that sound about like the, uh, the challenge against Congresswoman Green right now?
1: That's right. Um, the plaintiffs are saying she supported the insurrection and therefore shouldn't be eligible to run for re-election. And of course, Congresswoman Green says that's ridiculous you know <laughs> and her suit in particular takes aim with the state's qualification rules saying they should be governed by federal law and the constitution rather than by state qualification standards and i it's been interesting to me following this case from afar a little bit how there is a lot of rigorous and scholarly debate about whether states can impose these qualification restrictions on candidates can they can states really exercise that authority over someone who ultimately is a member of the federal government, not the state government? So (laughs) it'll be interesting. Um, As you know, the judge ruled and allowed the challenge to go forward. It'll next be heard by an administrative law judge and ultimately, decided by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger.
2: Okay, great. We had a little peek into this um, in the Joel Tia Mitchell, who is our Washington insider and covers the Georgia delegation up in D.C., wrote a standalone piece on this. But then we also quoted Judge Totenberg in her finding in the case. um, She didn't decide anything, obviously, as you said, but she just said that this can go forward. She did not decide to stop this uh, lawsuit in its tracks. And some people, I think, thought that It might have not gotten any further um, than this week's proceedings, but I'm going to read what uh, Tottenberg said. She said, under the circumstances, the court fails to see how the challenge process qualifies as a severe burden on plaintiff's first and 14th amendments rights. This is especially so considering that in recent years, the U.S. Supreme Court and courts in the circuit have repeatedly rejected claims by other candidates and voters who have similarly asserted that a state's various procedural hurdles to accessing the ballot placed were a severe burden on their constitutional rights. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene had said that just a challenge to her eligibility was an unfair burden Um, but of course if that was the case then you would never have challenges to people's eligibility if they were running for office Um, and Totenberg did say also that these are really novel important questions um, that have not really been dealt with in a, in a court. Um, and maybe they should be dealt with in a court, either up or down. Um, so that was uh, that's what we've heard from Totenberg. And then we will remain extremely on watch for what happens with that case, because we know it will have ramifications, not just for candidates here in Georgia, but maybe for candidates around the country. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And you're back on the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy, one of the two political insiders here on the podcast and one of the three authors of the Jolt Morning Newsletter. The Jolt sets the agenda and the stakes in Georgia politics every morning, and you can read it if you subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So go to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts, and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Greg Bluestein is off and so my co-host today is Mark Neese, Georgia government reporter for the AJC and if you follow me on Twitter, you know I really like to call Mark Neese a national treasure because of the unbelievable reporting that Mark does and I really am not kidding when I say that Mark, I really do see you as a national treasure, you follow these stories like a dog with a bone and thank God you do. You're too
1: kind. I think voting rights are very important and I really wish we had even more reporters on top of these issues. I think readers certainly are very much in tune with elections and voting administration and it's really stunning to me that there aren't more reporting jobs out there. Of course, AJC with me and other reporters on our team, I think they do a great job, but um I'd like to see more national media dedicate resources to ensuring that democracy works.
2: Okay, that also sounded like kind of a pitch to our editors to hire you <laughs> a few whippersnappers to help you cover these stories. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, plenty to noted. Go, go around. <laughs> Duly noted. Okay, Mark, one of the many, many stories that you have reported Already this week, and we are only here at midweek, um, you reported on Monday about this huge and unexplained decline in automatic voter registrations when Georgians go to um, get your driver's license, and that is known in some quarters as the motor voter law. Mark, tell us how automatic voter registration is supposed to work in Georgia right now.
1: Nationwide, Motor voter is a law that you have to have voting opportunities at driver's license offices. But Georgia is one of 22 states that took the next step and made registering to vote the default option when you fill out driver's license applications forms. You are registered to vote automatically in Georgia unless you specifically say, no, opt me out of that, I don't want it. And the result we saw the result over the last few years. Georgia's voter registration rates have gone way up, reaching a high of 95% of all eligible voters in 2020, according to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. So it was a tremendous success story. And now the question is, is it even working anymore since 2020? Because in 2021, the number of registrations from the driver's license office just plummeted. It went in half. About 79% of drivers were participating in automatic registration. registration when it was automatic before 2021. But then suddenly in January 2021, it went way down. It fell right off a cliff and you can see it very clearly that suddenly something changed and it went from that 79% participation rate in 2020 to 39 percent in 2021 which is more like the opposite of automatic registration you know it's more like if people had to affirmatively show that they wanted to register and not like they were being registered without having to do anything on their own and so we have breaking news coming out very soon Perhaps, almost certainly by the time everybody hears this, that we think we figured out what is going on here. And that is that some voting rights groups say, in fact, Georgia did effectively end automatic registration because there was a new website in use by the Department of Driver Services last year that did not automatically register you. It made you click, yes, I wanna be registered, or no, I don't wanna register. There wasn't any default option it you had to choose and that is not automatic voter registration that website was in use throughout 2021 and until just a few weeks ago when the department of driver services changed it again to restore a opt-out button but the effect was you know not only the drop in percentages of people participating in voter registration through driver's license offices but also raw numbers you know we saw the raw number of participants of people submitting voter registration applications which isn't just for new voters it's also very important for existing voters to make sure you have the correct address and correct precincts and correct voting locations it just fell off by a million from like 1.7 million registrations information's being forwarded to the Secretary of State's office in 2020 to 700-something thousand in 2021. So that's a million people who didn't submit updated information. Now, vast majority of those probably don't have any changes to their information, right? And they wouldn't be affected, and that's fine for them. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that thousands or tens of thousands of people would have been automatically registered, if not for the change at this website that made people decide rather than be automatically registered.
2: Now, do you know if at any point this was brought to the Secretary of State's attention? Did anybody raise this? Did this go on for a year without anybody saying anything?
1: It's been bubbling up mostly at the county level. I first heard about it last fall when it came to up in a fulton county elections board meeting where they noticed the drop and they had noticed it before but there was actually some comments by former elections director richard barron um, talking about the decline and there was never really an explanation and you know after that um, there were some people in particular democratic party of georgia looked into it they filed open records requests and asked questions about it and eventually they gave me their information um, which led up through 2020 but did not include actually the opt-out rates the rates that it automatic registration had declined in 2021. So I got that information. I was able to file records requests with Department of Driver Services, seek much more information, and also interview people and interview both the Secretary of State's office, Fulton elections officials, Department of Driver's license offices, office officials. I went to their board meeting last week and ultimately was able to prove and show that this was true automatic registration rates had plummeted and there was no explanation at first and now it certainly appears that it was this change in the application form on the website it shows that design really does matter it does influence people's behavior when on one thing, it's super easy. You don't do anything literally to be registered. And the other, you just have to click a button. But clicking that button can make a huge difference.
2: That's amazing. So it, one can maybe deduce that there would be a number of younger voters that were not included in that total uh, that ended up not being automatically registered, new voters, um, uh, new residents here in Georgia. Um, is there any way or any need to go back and clean that up? Is there a chunk of voters who or a chunk of potential voters who are just not registered? What does that mean for who is eligible to vote right now?
1: Well, everybody's still eligible to vote at least until Monday. Monday is the automatic, is the voter registration deadline for the primary. So I think the most important thing for voters is check your voter registration information on the state's my voter page mvp.sos.ga.gov. I'll say that again mvp.sos.ga.gov. Ultimately, nothing's going to change between now and Monday. There's no there's not going to be any will from our from the Secretary of State's office or the Department of Driver Services to make any changes maybe ever, but certainly not before the voter registration deadline. So it's going to be voters' responsibility to make sure their own registration information is accurate. Going forward, is there going to be any willpower to reach out to people who weren't registered who could have been? I really doubt it. I doubt it because, you know, even with the form that required people to opt in, or choose whether to be registered or not, they were given that option. Um, So everyone did click yes or did click no when they applied for a driver's license or a renewal. So, It does comply with federal law there is no state law requiring automatic voter registration it was an administrative policy decision made during secretary of state brian kemp's administration in 2016 along with the department of driver services and along with the attorney general's office so there's no real regulation that says you have to do automatic registration in georgia on the other hand it was the policy of the state and then without any notice The website changed to basically not reflect that policy so i do wonder if there will be more challenges to how this went down but for now i'm not seeing any action for now it's every voter for himself or herself to check that their registration is up-to-date and accurate
2: Yeah, and it sounds like it's just another piece of the unknown heading into the 2022 elections in terms of who is the electorate, who is going to show up and who's going to be able to vote um, and who's going to think they're able to vote and uh, may not be able to vote for one reason or another. Um, Another potential unknown is who is going to be the secretary of state at the end of this year? Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger has a significant primary challenge from Congressman Jody Heiss, who, of course, is the hand picked candidate of Donald Trump. He also has former Alpharetta mayor um, David Bellisle challenging him, and a number of Democrats uh, also challenging him. Uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was up with two new ads today, and I think we can start to divine a little bit of his strategy when we look at what he's got going from these ads. So the first ad attacks Stacey Abrams and credits Raffensperger rather than the Republican-led legislature. We know there's been some bad blood there um, for a law that outlawed ballot harvesting. So here's some of that audio.
0: Stacey Abrams wants to let non-citizens vote in our elections. Documented and undocumented. Brad stopped her. Brad's the first Secretary of State to do a full audit of Georgia's voter rules to make sure only Americans vote in our elections. Brad outlawed ballot harvesting, and he stood against the woke mob, making photo ID a requirement in all of Georgia's elections.
2: Boy, that is the greatest hits of Republican wishes, <laughs> hopes and dreams for the Republican primary. Uh, we have uh, illegal voters, ballot harvesting, the woke mob. Um, uh, so there's a, there's one piece from uh, Brad Raffensperger's campaign. Here's a second ad. Now, this ad targets Jody Heiss for failing to pass uh, in Raffensperger's retelling of this st- situation. Uh, any election security bills during his seven years in the U.S. House? Here's that ad.
0: Washington politician Jody Heiss has been in Congress for seven years, but what has he done?
2: Not a thing to protect our elections.
0: That's right not one election security bill passed. Meanwhile, he raked in thousands from the woke corporations that pushed Major League Baseball to strip away Georgia's All-Star game. Jody Heiss accomplished nothing during seven years in Congress. Now Jody Heiss wants to be Secretary of State.
1: With that record, no thanks, Jody. I
2: mean, those are two hard-hitting ads. What? Where do you see the contours of this race, Mark Nisi? Because I know you'll be following up.
1: Absolutely. It's really hard to judge. I think my instinct is that U.S. Representative Jody Heiss would appear to have at least an advantage on the surface because he is endorsed by former President Donald Trump. He is running on concerns about election fraud and integrity and attacking Brad Raffensperger for his stances and his actions during the 2020 election. In a primary race where you are running to get the votes of Republicans, it would seem to me that the candidate who can appear to be most Republican, who can have tag himself with that label, will have a leg up in the early going. That said, Secretary of State Brad Ravensburger does have a record. He has written a book about the 2020 election. He does try to appeal to the Reagan conservatives rather than the Trump conservatives. You know, um, Brad Raffensperger has always been Republican. He's always been conservative. He hasn't changed. What has changed from four years ago is he has an extensive record and he has become the enemy of Donald Trump. And so I think that puts the Secretary in a tough spot. But what I've seen from past primary campaigns And elections is one thing that really makes a difference is running a statewide campaign, really being visible and going out and campaigning and making sure that you are reaching to corners of the state that do participate in primaries most vigorously. And unlike a general election, there's this fog of war where there's so much uncertainty. There are so many undecideds that we aren't going to know which way they're going to go until perhaps when results come in. So it's tough to forecast, but perhaps we'll know more after we see our Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll that's upcoming soon.
2: Yes. That, well, that is a great plug for our upcoming um, AJC poll. We're going to, I think, get the results of that in the next couple of weeks. And that'll give us a really good indication going into those May 24th primaries. And we even have um, early voting coming up here in a couple of weeks. So we will um, continue to follow all of those races. Um, we will report it all out here on the Political Georgia podcast. Mark, thank you so much for joining me as co-host today. You have been twice as good as Greg (laughs) Lustein.
1: I don't know about that. I try to be half as good. But thank you for having
2: me. I kid. I kid. You're both wonderful. Well, that does it for the for this episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. Please rate, review, follow, share and subscribe and let us know how we can grow this podcast. We will talk to you Friday on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.